when I was in college, the show 24 was extremely popular. And so, of course, I and my roommates were just totally into it. I mean, I can remember, oh, I can't remember if it was Sunday or Monday nights, but, but it, at the, whatever night it came on, at 9 o'clock, all of life stopped. Our phones were, were shut off, the doors were locked, the books were closed, assuming they were opened. And we gathered around the TV set. We were locked in. A couple things that made the show so enjoyable, um, I didn't phrase that great, but one of the things I loved about it uh, was uh, the, they had a clock. The show took place in real time. And so it would always open up with a digital clock and the seconds ticking. And you could, like, it made a funny noise as they clicked by, like, doot, doot, doot. And it ended the same way with the clock as an hour had passed in real time. It was always a very dramatic show. And so I love that it would end and everybody would always be going, oh my goodness, I can't believe they did that. Can you believe what's going to happen next week? Loved it. If you don't know 24, maybe you know something like, um, like Dukes of Hazzard. Right? And the episode would end with a car in the air, like, will they make it? Don't know, hard to tell. They do. The cliffhanger is nothing new to television. Draws us in. It gets our attention. It, it, it builds that suspense. And likewise, in Acts chapter 18, by only preaching the first 11 verses last week, I left you, at least I hope I did, in suspense. Remember, Paul had come to Corinth full of fear and discouragement, and God had encouraged him to persevere. Look at, at verse uh, 9. He says, keep speaking. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent because I am with you. No one is going to lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. And so with that encouragement in hand, we, we have the question, will Paul continue to preach the gospel? Will he continue to speak? Will he overcome his fear? Will he continue to persevere by leaning into God's presence and providence? Will God keep his promise to keep Paul safe? What will happen? And that brings us to our text this morning, where we'll find that indeed God keeps his word. God keeps his word. You can take it to the bank. And that's our main idea this morning, is that God keeps his word. And then the, the exhortation is simple. Believe God's word. This seems rudimentary basic to Christianity. But as basic as it may be, I fear that too many of us forget it. Too many of us fail to take God at his word. Too many of us doubt and fail to believe what God has said. And yet we must believe what God has said. This is the call of the Christian life. Faithfulness. Submission to our Lord and to his word. I want to exhort you to believe God's word. You'll see the outline. I want you to trust God's providence, trust his promises, promises first, then providence, and to trust God's people. And you also see there on your insert, I've given you four characteristics of God's word. Theologians will say that the, the scripture or God's holy word has four common characteristics. They are sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessity. So I've given those to you so you can remember them if you, you want to sound really theological the next time somebody asks you about the characteristics of Scripture, you'll know them. Uh, I've also sprinkled them throughout the message a little bit, and so you, can, you just have your eyes peeled for them. And if you so desire to learn them, I've given you an acronym. 
See, the first letter of each word is bolded. And so it spells the word scan. So you scan scripture. These are the things that are in scripture that characterize scripture. If you don't like scan as an acronym, you could flip it around and turn it into cans, I guess. I like scan better. And so, so we'll see in our text, or at least I'll try to bring up, that scripture is sufficient. That means that they contain everything we need to know for salvation and godly living. It means we don't need any new revelation from God. We have all the revelation we need in the Bible, in his word. Second thing is that it, scripture is clear. And really, simple way to say this is that it can be understood You don't need an MDiv or a PhD to understand what's in Scripture. It doesn't mean that all parts of Scripture are equally clear. Some of them are hard to understand. But it means that it can be understood. Authority, that God's Word is final, that it rules us. And lastly, necessity. We can't know God unless He speaks to us. So with those things in mind, we'll pray, and then we'll get into the text. Father, we thank you for this glorious privilege of studying your word together, of gathering on this Lord's Day, not to mourn over the death of Christ, though it does sober us at the cost of our sin, but to rejoice and celebrate his resurrection. This is why we gather each and every week, each and every Sunday, reminding ourselves at the beginning of a new week that indeed his mercies are ever new. That indeed his love doesn't fail. That indeed Christ is risen and ruling on his throne in heaven. That he's poured out his Holy Spirit. And just as he filled up the church in Acts that it might witness to his resurrection and let all nations know that they can have life, eternal life, through faith in him if they turn from their sins, that so too, even now, that same Holy Spirit lives in us your church, and that we are called to witness to those in our community and around the world. We're called to proclaim Christ as King, the King who is alive and who will return to judge sin. Let us be faithful to this call and pray that our time listening to your word proclaimed today would serve to help shape us in the image of Christ, would serve to encourage us into faithfulness, into persevering in the tasks that you've given to us. God, I pray that you would give me clarity of thought, eloquence of speech, that you would give us as a congregation ears to hear, hearing and understanding your word, rightly can only be done if your Holy Spirit helps us to listen. So give us your spirit this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So will God keep his word to Paul? And we see in verse 11, Paul stays there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. And then this is where the drama starts in verse 12 of chapter 18. While Gallio was proconsul, it's like a governor, of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, 
If it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Gallio. We see the tension in the narrative begin to get taut. Is that the right word? To, to be more tense. Suspense is building. Paul is put on trial. He's before the tribunal and this, this new governor, Gallio. And before Paul can open his mouth to defend himself, before the trial can really get started, this governor speaks up and says, case dismissed. This is about your own law and matters among Jews. So I'm not worried about it. He dismisses the case. And that's, it's, not, it's not just that he dismisses the case. It's that he delivers a verdict that is that exactly the opposite of what the Jews in Corinth were seeking. And so they want to persecute the Christians as this new religious, unsanctioned, unsanctioned religious group. And Gallio, by his verdict, he says, this isn't a new unsanctioned religious group, though it was. He says, I'm going to lump the Christians together with the Jews. This is a matter of dispute about your own law. And so you guys have to work it out yourselves. And so you see, what's happened is, in this verdict, he set a precedent of sorts so that Christians can enjoy the same benefits that the Jews enjoyed. That they can't be persecuted because of their religion in this particular province. It's the exact opposite of what they had hoped to gain by persecuting Paul. And so we see that Paul believes God's word, he trusts God's promises, and God delivers. Paul had a choice to make when he chose to remain in Corinth. He easily could have said, I'm going to trust in myself, and I'm just going to pack up and leave. Or he could have said, I'm going to stay here, but I'm going to, I'm going to stay silent. But said he continued to preach the gospel because he believed God's word. And God's word functioned authoritatively in Paul's life. It's one thing to say, well, of course I believe God's word. It's another thing to submit to it, especially when you are afraid to or when you don't like to. But friends, God's word, regardless of your response to it, is always authoritative. It always rules. It always accomplishes what God sets it out to accomplish. And we should always obey it. So whether or not you submit yourself to the authority of God's word, I want you to know that you are submitting yourself to some authority. Whether it be your community, the approval of others, whether it be to opinion polls or a political party, whether it just be a submission to your own feelings, there is something in your life that functions as the authority by which you make your decisions. And authority will govern your decisions. The question for you is what serves as that authority? Do you submit yourself to God's word? Does God's word rule your life or do you rule your life? For Paul, it was God's word that would rule his life. He understood the authority of Scripture. He understood 
that God's word is final and that it can be believed. Church, if we disobey God's word, I think everybody knows that's sin, right? But what's, what's lost on us more is that when we disbelieve God's word, that's also sin. It's unfaithfulness. Unbelief is a sin against God. We must believe God's word. And it really is amazing how God flips this situation on the Jews who are trying to persecute Paul. It's like a wily e. coyote type deal. Like they had sought out to persecute Paul and Christians, and then they end up with the same protections. And then also, you see this ironically, like maybe they even hoped that Paul might be beaten. And at the end, it's the, the Jewish religious leader, the new leader of the synagogue to, that follows Crispus, Sosthenes, who is beaten. Also, ironically enough, God doesn't use a earthquake or a lightning bolt from heaven or a legion of angels in order to protect Paul. He does something quite ordinary. He just turns the heart of this new governor, Gallio, to deliver the verdict that would keep Paul safe. Friends, God works in very ordinary ways. He works in the humdrum of your everyday life. Let me encourage you to, this afternoon and this week, to take some time and look back over your life and reflect on how God has been faithful to you. It will encourage you to persevere in Christ and to put your faith in him tomorrow. God's past faithfulness to us reminds us that he will be faithful in the future. Think on his faithfulness. Think about how his grace has come upon you in unexpected ways, in ordinary ways. I'm certain Sosthenes himself often reflected on God's ironic providence in his life. And what do you mean? Sosthenes, the guy that just got beat up? Yes, Sosthenes. Because later Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth. Why this particular name? It is a common name in the Greek world, but I can't help but make the connection between Sosthenes in Acts chapter 18 and Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians 1.1. And something happens to Sosthenes between him getting beaten up by maybe the Jews, maybe the Greeks, it's not really clear, but getting beaten up after this tribunal and Paul calling him a brother that's writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.1. God gets a hold of him. And if you're keeping track, this is the second leader of that same Jewish synagogue that's converted to faith in Christ. You have Crispus, leader of the synagogue, drives Paul out. Paul takes up shop next door. Crispus becomes a Christian. This guy is leading the charge against Paul, becomes a Christian. Sosthenes follows in Paul's footsteps. An enemy of the gospel. And he becomes a believer in the gospel. And this is the path of every Christian that you've ever met. We are all enemies of God. Sinners. In rebellion against the God who created us. We have cast off his authority and taken up arms against him that we might demand our autonomy 
And instead of killing us for this treasonous act, God the Son takes on flesh and is killed for our betrayal himself. Jesus hangs on a criminal's cross so that we can have a crown of life. He promises forgiveness and resurrection, eternal life to everyone who repents of their rebellion, to everyone who stops trusting their own good works and begins trusting in his perfect work. He promises to us salvation when we believe in him by submitting to his lordship. And friends, God always keeps his word. He always keeps his word. It's beautiful in Romans where this truth is held out to us. God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more, since we have been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? We will be saved by his life. Jesus promised this, John 3, 34. For the one whom God sent, that's Jesus, speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And I want you to notice that last line, especially if you're a non-Christian. I think sometimes there's this notion out there, people will say, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. That comes just prior to this in John. But the reason Jesus didn't come to condemn the world is because the world was already condemned. The world had already chosen sin and rebellion against God and is under his wrath. The one who doesn't put their faith in Christ, you see that at the end of John 3.36, remains under God's wrath. God's wrath remains on him. Here's Jesus' point. Here's his, his promise and his warning. Repent and follow me. Put your faith in me. Submit to my lordship and you will have eternal life. Continue in rebellion against me and the wrath of God will remain on you. Non-Christian, God has promised salvation to those who put their faith in him. And he's also promised judgment to those who continue in rebellion. He is good and he is right and he will judge sin. He always keeps his word. I want to implore you to trust in the promise of salvation. To trust in Christ as your Lord. God always keeps his word. We can trust his promises. And we can also trust his providence as Paul sees. He begins to move on from Corinth in verse 18. After staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He shaved his head at Sentry because of a vow he had taken. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews. 
When they asked him to stay longer, he declined, but said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again, if the Lord wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. On landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem. In some of your translations, you'll just have went up there. And it's universally agreed that this language went up means went up to Jerusalem. It was on, Jerusalem's on a hill. And so you'd go up to Jerusalem and salute the church there. And you'd go down from Jerusalem, whether you were going north or south. So Paul goes up to Jerusalem and then goes down, which is actually to the north, to Antioch. That one was for free. He went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, then went down to Antioch. So that's the end of his first missionary journey, or second missionary journey, if you're keeping track. Then he starts his third missionary journey here in verse 23. After spending some time there, he set out, traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So if you really have a passion for geography, this is like your favorite passage ever. Because Paul is just all over the place. I'm really bad at geography, and so trying to keep track was a little, little challenging. But, but this is where he goes. He goes from Corinth through Century to Ephesus, Caesarea, up to Jerusalem, and then to Antioch, before heading back towards Ephesus. And it's really interesting here at the end, you notice he sails back to where he's going from Ephesus, and that's because that's the quickest way to go. You get on the ship, you can sail around there from Ephesus back towards where Antioch is. It's the quickest way. But on his way to return to Ephesus, third missionary journey, you see in verse 23, he travels through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia. Friends, this would have been a very difficult journey because he took it by foot, right? It's, it's the difference between hopping on a plane and flying cross-country to California and it takes like five hours and driving a car and it takes, I don't know, however long it takes, you know, like 24-ish hours, I'm guessing. Why? Well, Paul takes this difficult way, walks 800-ish miles by foot, once more because of his love for the church and his commitment to the gospel. We see it over and over and over again. Paul loves God and he loves God's people. He's about strengthening the disciples. He's about making God known in places where God is not yet known. It's because Paul realizes the necessity of Scripture, the necessity of God's Word getting to God's people. Brothers and sisters, no one has ever come to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. No one has ever been reconciled to God all on their own. We need God's word for God to tell us about himself so that we might believe and be reconciled to him. We can't reason our way there ourselves. God must speak to us. That's one of the reasons I think sometimes people give you that elephant illustration. Like all the religions of the world are the same. You know, we're all blind people and you know, some of us grab the trunk and we're like, God is like a snake. You're with the metaphor, right? Or God is like a wall. God is like a tree trunk. And really, everybody just has a piece of, of the puzzle. And the problem with the illustration, which was popular when I was in college and high school, and I'm sure it persists, is two things. One, the person giving the illustration assumes omniscience. They assume that they know what God is like and they have the whole picture. And then more damning is this. 
What if the elephant speaks and tells the blind men, actually, you've got it wrong. I'm an elephant. Because this is what God has done. He has spoken to us and told us what he is like. And he has said, the only way to have salvation, the only way to be in right relationship with me is through faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sin and rose again. God speaks. And it's necessary that he speaks to us. And it's wonderful that he's spoken to us in his word so that we might know him. God's word is necessary for us to know God. And this is why Paul strengthens the churches with God's word. It's why he goes about all throughout Acts with the rest of the church, spreading and preaching and reasoning with the word of God. Friends, as a church, this is why we exist. We exist to worship and witness to Jesus by proclaiming the gospel and making disciples of all nations. And we do that in submission to and with God's word. Pray that we would never drift from this mission. This is a mission that Paul certainly never drifted from. Now, there are two other questions we may have in this section. Uh, The first being, I think, why on earth are we told that Paul gets a haircut? Right? Something like verse 18. And it's because he took a vow. And we don't know what kind of vow. Nothing in the text tells us. It's never brought up again. Um, But, you know, commentators like to speculate. And so many speculate that this is, he shaves his head in accord with a Nazarite vow. If you're familiar with a Nazarite vow, right? Do you remember who had one? Took one, Old Testament. Yeah, Samson, right? Long hair, cut, whole deal. But, but this Nazarite vow, you would complete it, you would cut your hair, and you would offer it at Jerusalem with a sacrifice. And so uh, some folks think that he is concluding some Nazarite vow that he had taken. Uh, others think he's beginning one. You know, like sh- he's going to take this Nazarite vow before his next journey. He's going to shave his head, maybe like a hockey player before the playoffs start, because he knows it's going to grow for a really long time. Uh, But we're not sure. We don't know if this is the end of the vow, if this is the beginning of the vow. Uh, What we do know is he took a vow. (laughs) I loved one of the commentators trying to sort this out. You would take, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. So you would take this vow as an act of petition to the Lord to say, I'm completely dependent on you to keep me safe. Or you could take the vow in gratitude. Thank you for this or for that and for keeping me safe. So we we just don't know why he took this vow or if it was even a Nazarite vow. As one commentator put it really helpfully, Certainty is impossible. And I thought, thanks for taking four and five pages to tell me that. So we don't know, but it's interesting, and now you have that that knowledge there. Uh, The next question, I think, is why does he leave Ephesus if he's just going to go back? Now, some some will have a note in your Bible, or maybe it's right there in the translation, um, where it'll read something about it's necessary uh, to keep coming festivals in Jerusalem. But that seems to be a later addition to the text. The, the earliest and best manuscripts don't have that line in there. And it seems like a scribe was like, this doesn't make sense. I better throw something in there. He's got to travel before the, the season. And so your Bible has that in there to let you know. We're not certain that this is um, part of God's authoritative word. At the end of the day, nobody really knows why Paul goes on. But what is interesting to me It's not necessarily why he goes on, but how he responds to them in verse 21. He says, I'll come back to you again if God wills, if the Lord wills. 
And you can remember, Ephesus is in one of those regions where he was prevented from going earlier on by the Holy Spirit. So you wonder if the timing's just not right, or if Paul's taken that as a lesson. He's like, I'm moving on, I'm going to plan to come back, but God kept me from coming here before, and so I'm not writing it in pen. (laughs) I think this gives us a good model that we can look at our own lives and go, we don't know with certainty what God's will of direction is. So what I mean is, does God have a specific plan for your life? Yes. Does God intend for you to find out exactly what that specific plan is? No. Christians tie themselves in knots over this. I've got to find the will of God for my life so I can get centered in the will and do what he wants. It's not helpful. I think this came up earlier in Acts, and I recommended to many of you a tiny little book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. It's an excellent book. But anyway, he just talks about God's will of decree. It means everything that's going to happen according to God's decree. God's will of desire, that is how God would desire us to live, which is told to us in his word, in obedience to his word. And then God's will of direction, which is what we've just been talking about. That we can't really sort this out, but sometimes as Christians we really, really try to. And Paul, he's not sorting all that out. He's simply, he's making plans and then he's trusting in God's providence. And so he's, he's going, I know what God's will of desire is. It's that I would preach the gospel. It's that I would be faithful and live a holy life. Scripture is sufficient to tell him how to live. And so he says, I'm going to live in obedience to God's word and I hope to come back here. It's what I desire to do. But that might not be in God's plans. If the Lord wills, I will return. Friends, we need to learn to say, if the Lord wills in our own lives. We don't need to to tie ourselves in knots trying to figure out what God would have us do precisely. We need to recognize that God's word is sufficient for all we need to know about salvation and life and godliness. You know, it's not, it's not going to tell us, you know, you're not going to open like, okay, uh, who should I marry? And you open up your, your Bible and it goes, John. All right, I got I to gotta marry John. I'm looking for a John. I asked God who I should marry, so I flipped open my Bible, and it went to John. No, 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 it's not how it works. It's sufficient to guide your decision-making. Well, what the Bible does tell you if you're looking for a spouse is that it should be someone who's a Christian, if you're a Christian. It should be somebody who's pursuing righteousness, who loves Jesus, gives you an idea of what they might look like. Make a wise choice. God is not going to give you the answers uh, just straight up opening the Bible about the next thing to do in your life. Who to marry, what job to take, where to go to college, when to retire. But he's going to give you all kinds of wisdom that will help you make those decisions. So make God-honoring decisions and then trust his providence. You can take those risks because God doesn't risk. He's got it. You can trust his providence. Say, if the Lord wills. Make plans, put them in pencil. This point is extra salient because Chelsea is very pregnant right now, and so I've been saying all the last couple weeks, you know, I'll meet you for this event if the Lord wills. You don't know. Make plans this way. God is in control. We can trust his providence. We can trust his word is sufficient to guide us. And so Paul trusts and says he will come back. And notice he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. We get a glimpse into Ephesus while Paul is gone in verse 24. 
now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After, Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Apollos is an excellent speaker that shows up in Ephesus and is preaching the gospel. He's preaching about Jesus accurately. I don't know how you preach about Jesus accurately without mentioning his life, death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation. He's preaching about him accurately, and he's really good at it. He's Spurgeon before Spurgeon, right? He's golden mouth Chrysostom before Chrysostom. He is the man. People love this guy. He's a great speaker. And yet, despite his being fervent in the Spirit, despite his teaching the gospel accurately, there is a small mistake, small this theology, just a little bit off as it relates to, it seems, baptism. You see, he only knew John's baptism. And no one is able to agree on what this means precisely. What we are able to agree on is that it means something in his theology wasn't quite right and needed correcting. This is actually a good time to point out the clarity of Scripture. And you're going, what? That doesn't seem very clear. Well, no, this is one of those, those unclear parts that Peter talks about when he says, uh, Paul writes some really hard things that are hard to untangle. And those who are enemies of the gospel twist them to their own destruction. Parts of the Bible are hard to understand. I'm not, not arguing that. The clarity of Scripture means that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, and that you don't need an MDiv or a PhD to understand those things. And Apollos is able to understand them. That's how he's able to preach accurately the way of Jesus. He has his Hebrew Bible. Somebody has preached him the gospel. And so he is able to preach Jesus from the Hebrew scriptures accurately because of the clarity of scripture. He's able to, verse 28, demonstrate through the scriptures once he goes back to Corinth that Jesus is the Messiah. Scripture is clear. There are also parts of it like this where we're just not really sure what this on John's baptism don't know how his teaching was deficient. Just know that it was. And notice what happens. Aquila and Priscilla have been left by Paul in Corinth for such a time as this. They listen to him speak, and then they, they receive him. They, they take him aside, maybe host him in his house, or in their house, and they, they correct this. Like, actually, you have this part of your theology is a little wrong. You know, they gave him, a, hey, great sermon. Love how you're preaching Christ. But you just a little off on baptism. This would be like John Piper or, um, or Mark Dever coming here. We'll use Mark since he's actually been here. But imagine Mark comes and he preaches a sermon and then afterwards, you know, something was a little off on, in his theology, said something wrong. And, and David and Pam invite him over to their house for, for lunch after church. And they're like, Brother Mark, thanks for coming. Thanks for preaching the gospel accurately. There's this 
small thing about your, your doctrine of baptism that you, you messed up a little bit. And it's correcting it. That's what's happening here. It's really incredible. They correct him. And perhaps more incredible is that he receives it. He doesn't say, I am the mighty Apollos. Who are you? Peasants. No, no. He humbly receives the word. And then they're able to endorse him and send him on to Corinth, where he has a fruitful and effective ministry. An observation and two applications. One observation and two applications. Observation. The prohibition against women preaching and teaching in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 14, and in 1 Timothy 2. Let me say it the way I wrote it down. The prohibitions in 1 Corinthians 11, 14, and 1 Timothy 2 against women preaching and teaching in the gathering of the church are not prohibitions against women teaching at all. With me? And so when we are told in the scriptures that a woman may not teach or exercise authority over a man, that she may not perform the office of elder, that she may not preach in the gathered assembly of the church, that we submit ourselves to that because God's word is authoritative. It's not a matter of gifting or ability, but a matter of God's created order. And so we obey God's order and God's word rather than the contemporary zeitgeist. But, and this also needs to be said, that is not a prohibition on women teaching outside of this assembly. Indeed, throughout the New Testament, women are encouraged to teach. Encouraged to teach children. Encouraged to teach other women. They're encouraged to teach in their homes. As Priscilla, who is a woman, teaches together with Apollos in their home, or together with Priscilla, who's a woman, teaches together with her husband, Aquila, they teach Apollos in their home. And so what, we're, what I'm, I'm trying to say is that while women are prohibited from serving in the office of elder, they're not prohibited from teaching at all. Does that make sense? That in fact there are contexts and ways that women can and should teach. We, we see it here, see it elsewhere, and I'm, I'm so thankful that women do teach in obedience to the scriptures. I think of, um, of Timothy, who we met. And Paul writes to him in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse, one of these verses. 2 Timothy 3, 14. This is what Paul says to him. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-inspired and is useful for correcting, rebuking, and teaching, and training for all righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Did you notice that? Paul's telling him to continue in the faith, to persevere in the faith, and he says, you know what you've believed. And you know who you learned it from. Do you guys remember when we met Timothy earlier in Acts, who he learned the gospel from? It was Paul, yes, but also his grandma and his mom taught him the scriptures. Makes me think of uh, John Piper at a conference one time was being interviewed, and somebody asked him, John, 
Why do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? And John has written books on this. There's all kinds of good reasons to trust the Bible. But his response was unexpected and true. He said, because my mama told me it was true. Praise God for John's mother. I think sometimes when we are tempted to abandon our trust in the Scriptures or abandon the faith, that we, we must remember what we have learned and those faithful people in our lives who have taught it to us. Friends, women in particular, those that you teach, or your children, your, your grandchildren, one another, those you teach in your homes, th- those efforts are crucially important. It's not some kind of, I don't know, just unimportant role. You need to embrace the ways that God has called you to teach. So thankful for women in the church. This would have been good on Mother's Day. Man, should have saved it. Uh, they're invaluable. They're part of God's created design. And so teach in the ways that are appropriate without seeking to usurp God's created order. And so to summarize that rather lengthy observation, which also turned into an exhortation, the prohibition in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 14, and in 1 Timothy 2 against women preaching and teaching in the gathering of the church, these prohibitions are not prohibitions against women teaching at all. Indeed, there are ways that women should teach in the church. If you have uh, questions on that, you can ask Mike afterwards. I'm sure he'll love to field them. Two applications, and these will be quicker. Application number one, be willing to correct one another. Be willing to correct one Be willing to correct me. I know this is hard to believe. <laughs> I am not always right. Not always right. My wife is over there, amen. You know, she corrects me often. We need correction. We need each other. We need to be corrected from sin. We are sinners. And we need to sometimes be corrected on our theology when we're thinking wrongly about God. And so talk with one another about the scriptures. Talk about theology and and correct one another. Sharpen one another. Help one another follow Jesus more closely. This is part of what the church does. You can trust God's people to help you grow in righteousness. We are members of one another, the same body, and the body grows up together in maturity. Second application. Be teachable. Be teachable. This is probably the harder of the two. It's so hard to receive in correction sometimes. But be teachable. Be willing to have someone come into your life and say, Brother, sister, I see this sin. I think that you need to repent of it. Or, Brother, sister, I see uh, that you're thinking about this this way, and I think that it's more, it's right to think about it this way. Right? Understand where you can disagree, do some theological triage, right? Can't disagree about the Trinity, you know, can disagree about the end times, but, but have these conversations. And be teachable. Be willing to learn. You can trust God's people to help you grow in the faith as they point you to Jesus by pointing to God's Word. God's Word tells us all we need for life and for godliness. Use the church. 
Take advantage of the blessings that God has given to you. Friends, God keeps his word. Jesus has promised us that his word is the power unto salvation. We've been told repetitively by Paul in the New Testament that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jesus has promised us eternal life. He's given it to us by his divine power, we're told in 2 Peter. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, his glory and goodness, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. God has promised us so much. He's promised us that when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, we won't, even though we die yet, shall we live. He's promised us that he will build his church. He's promised us that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He's promised us that he's going to judge sin. He's promised us that he's going to end evil. He's promised us that he's going to wipe every tear from the eye. He's promised us that he's going to make all things new. He's promised us a new heavens and a new earth. He's promised us the joy of beholding his wonderful face. He's promised us fellowship with one another. He's promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us or quit on us. He's promised us that his grace is sufficient for us, that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. He's promised us that he's working everything together for our good and his glory and his word doesn't fail. He keeps his promises. God keeps his word. Believe it. Believe in his word. You can take it to the bank. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the grace you've given to us. It is by grace we have believed. We can boast not in anything, not in our intellect or our reason, but in Christ alone. We would not believe this wonderful good news if it wasn't for your sovereign grace. Thank you for saving us. I pray that you would make us faithful to share your gospel with our family and our friends and our community so that they too might know the blessedness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Pray that you would submit us to your word, that we would be shaped by it. We'd recognize, we can understand the scriptures, they're clear. That we can know you by knowing the scriptures that you've spoken to us there, that, that your word is necessary for our life and godliness. Help us to submit to your word as our authority. Let it rule our lives. Let us know that all we need to know about salvation and godliness has been given to us in Christ. It's given to us in your word. Lord, we, we confess that we will fail to live perfect lives and that we need Jesus, our perfect Savior, that we need him every hour of every minute of every day. Thank you that Though our sins are many, your mercy is more. 
Your mercy is stronger than the darkness within us. It's new every morning. We pray that we would enjoy that mercy this morning as we participate together in the Lord's Supper. As we pray in Christ's name, amen.